I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 22 as we continue to work our way through uh, the book of Exodus on these Sunday evenings together. But before reading from the word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Our Lord, we give you thanks for the truth of your word and pray that you would grow us even this evening in submission to the wonderful law of the Lord considering how this law given so many years ago continues to have relevance and application for our lives as those who have been redeemed and saved by sovereign grace. In the name of Christ, our risen Lord, we pray. Amen. And stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beasts loose and it feeds in another man's field he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and in his own vineyard if fire breaks out and catches in thorns or so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed he who started the fire shall make full restitution if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house then if the thief is found he shall pay double If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, An oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If he was hired, it came for its hiring fee. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. He shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will cry out to me. I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? 
And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. The word of God. You may be seated. Now as we continue to work our way through the book of Exodus, and in this section, chapters 21 through 23, we could refer to it as the book of the covenant. Let's keep in mind that these are civil laws given to the nation of Israel as application of the Ten Commandments. And so while the immediate context is, of course, for the children of Israel as they prepare to enter into the land of promise, there is still much for us to learn about the nature of the law itself, about how to take the law of God and apply it to our own lives as we think about the calling to love God and to love our neighbor. And I think we learn a great deal about God himself, about the character of the Lord. Now, it's important in our reading of Scripture, especially in a text like this, to keep in mind that the central character in all of Scripture is the Lord himself. We are always learning something more and more about the nature of who our God is, his kindness to us to give us such laws as these. So when we come to these particular chapters in Exodus, we're learning things about God. We're learning about the kindness of the Lord. We're learning about the tenderness of God and the goodness of God. That we're not only saved by grace, but God is so gracious and kind to us that he gives us instruction on how we are called to live as his redeemed people. How to learn to get along with one another in this fallen and sin-cursed world. Life is oftentimes hard. Circumstances are difficult and complex. Trials of all different shapes arise in the life of church members together. And so we need the tender and loving and merciful guidance of the Lord to help us through this life, to help us learn to live with one another as we press on toward our heavenly home. And so as we look at this chapter tonight, we'll really break it into two main sections, the first 16 verses and then the latter portion. And in the first 16 or 15 verses, rather, what we see in this section are laws related to personal property. This is our first point tonight. We could simply label it as property laws. Now, just as we saw last time together, which has been some time in our studies through Exodus together, but you might recall that many of these laws have behind them the presumption of the ownership of personal property. This is not communal living in which everything is put together in a giant pot for people to just take whatever they need or feel that they need from others. But there is to be respect of what belongs to your neighbor. Now, of course, these are laws that are given in an agrarian society. And so the instruction is related to ox and sheep and fields. Now, I know I don't know any of your investment portfolios, but I can presume that most of you don't have your assets tied up in cattle or fields of grain. Though we do live in Polk County, so I suppose it's not beyond the realm of possibility. But this is written some 3,500 years ago, but there are still principles that can be applied to our modern age. In our own time, we see all sorts of varying forms of theft, deception, embezzlement, and, and false record keeping. I was thinking about the recent collapse of the crypto company FTX, 
in which billions of dollars were lost. It's just one example in the long line of corporate deception and theft. And I think it's really just a matter of time before the next unfathomable case of fraud is uncovered. I read somewhere that there was at least one investor who may have lost over $100 million in that scandal. And even though there are some that could face prison time, that certainly doesn't replace what was lost through greed and deception. But these biblical laws help us to understand the important principle of restitution. In other words, we learn what is needed to make things right when a neighbor is harmed by your actions, whether those actions are intentional or accidental. And so we could take these property laws and we could break them down into differing categories, if you'll follow along in your text with me. The first thing that is addressed in verses 1 through 4 is theft. Now notice how the amount of restitution that is owed to the neighbor depends on what happens to the stolen property. If the animal stolen is not recovered because it's sold or because it's killed, the thief is to repay fourfold in the case of a sheep, fivefold in the case of an ox. Now, I think the reason why this punishment is so severe is because of how destructive theft can be if it's not rooted out of the community. But also, these are animals that are used on a daily basis to provide for one's livelihood. So they are absolutely critical for a man in order to provide for his family. You can imagine if an ox is stolen, it might take the owner quite some time to train a new one properly in order to get it up to its proper level of productivity. We might think of a carpenter whose tools are stolen out of the back of his truck. These tools are his livelihood. Each one is sort of contoured to his liking, and these are tools that can't be easily replaced. And so every moment that he goes without these tools, he's unable to complete a project and, of course, therefore to provide for his family. Now, even if the animal is recovered, or in our modern-day example, a tool is recovered, there is still a fine that is to be imposed because of lost work and, I think, as a deterrent against future crime. We read of another example of theft that's related here to breaking and entering. If someone intrudes into your home at night, the homeowner, of course, has no knowledge of knowing who this is or what their intentions might be to bring harm perhaps to him or to his family member. And so if he acts in self-defense and the intruder is killed, he is not liable for that. And of course, we have similar laws today that protect the homeowner. But notice how things are different during the daytime. And I think this reveals to us the nature of the Lord in terms of his compassion. Presumably, there could be all sorts of reasons why why someone might come onto your property in the daylight hours that are not malevolent. This doesn't allow, you see, for vigilante behavior. You can't just shoot the salesman who comes on your property for any reason. And of course, if someone comes on your property during the day and does some form of theft, presumably you see who they are and you can bring that matter before the elders of the city and it can be adjudicated in a different manner. Then there's another category of property laws that we read about in verses 5 and 6 that are related to negligence. Perhaps your animal gets loose and eats someone's crops or a fire on your property gets out of control and destroys the stacks of grain on your neighbor's property. In situations like this, notice how the law directs. Even if this is an accident, there must be adequate repayment or restitution because of your negligence. 
And we can think of all sorts of modern-day examples in which you're doing something on your property and you inadvertently damage your neighbor's property. Your son is throwing his baseball around in the backyard and it goes over the fence and smashes through the neighbor's kitchen window. Or your daughter's riding her bike out on the street and accidentally scratches the neighbor's car that's parked in front of his house. Your response should not be, well, they should have had a higher fence. He shouldn't have parked his car on the street in the first place. Instead, we take responsibility and we make things right to show respect and love and kindness to our neighbor and to bear witness to the fact that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we are negligent, we ought to take responsibility, not look to make excuses, defend ourselves, or shift the blame. We read more of property laws in verses 7 through 13 that have to do with safekeeping. Now, this is an age in which these laws were originally given, in which, of course, there are no banks that are FDIC insured. There are no safety deposit boxes or home alarm systems to guard your property when you might be traveling. And so in the ancient Near East, you might ask your trusted neighbor to keep your valuables, to keep your animals while you are out of town. If those things are stolen while your friend is watching them and the thief is found, well, the laws again prescribe that that thief is to replace and pay double in restitution. If the thief was not caught while your property was being watched by your neighbor, you can understand why that might look a little bit suspicious. Perhaps the neighbor is making the whole thing up and using this as an opportunity to benefit off of the property that he was washing for you. Or perhaps it's just general negligence on the part of the person who is watching your items for you, not keeping a close eye on them. And so he must pay restitution in such cases. Basically, if the neighbor is watching your property for you, whether it's a valuable heirloom, whether it happens to be cattle or something along those lines, he is to treat those things as his own in terms of protecting and caring for them. This is a way to serve and love your neighbor. Now, there's one more example of property laws in verses 14 through 15 surrounding borrowed property. Now, here's a category that we can perhaps all identify with. There are times when we might need to borrow something from our neighbor. I have a great neighbor next door who has all kinds of wonderful tools, most of which I don't even know how they work, and I would probably never buy them on my own. But I know that if I ever needed a tool from him, he would be glad to loan it to me. And if I happened to break it, he would tell me not to worry about it. But the instruction from the law here would lead me to insist upon replacing that tool, even if it was an accident, even if it was an older tool on the verge of breaking. If it breaks on my watch... I'm responsible to replace it. Now remember, when we think of all these varying types of laws from the Lord, they might seem to be very specific, but they don't, of course, address every scenario that's going to come up in life together. These are just general guidelines, case laws, as examples to help the people learn how to apply the law of the Lord on their own. And if a neighbor can't resolve a matter themselves in some sort of dispute, By looking to the law of the Lord, they can take that matter to the elders of the city to look for help. So think about some things that we learn here. Again, the Lord is good to his people to help them learn how to live peaceably with one another out of respect and kindness for each other, looking out for one another, resolving disputes quickly when such things arise. 
that they would have a spirit of peace and unity among them. And I think it's important to note that these laws are much different than other ancient Semitic laws that have been uncovered by archaeologists over the years. Other law codes from this region and this period of life reveal codes that prescribe the death penalty for thievery or cutting off of the hands of a lowly peasant with harsher penalties for those who are part of the lower class. But God's law is different. It shows care and respect and preservation of life. If personal property is damaged, well, justice demands that you make things right out of love for God and love for your neighbor. And for us, it's a desire to bear witness to our identity as God's people, those who are in union with Christ Jesus. And so if your son does happen to break the neighbor's window in our example from earlier, you don't rummage through your garage and find a a piece of glass that might fit. You don't call your cousin who used to be in glasswork 10 years ago and ask him to come over and fix it, but you make it right to their liking. If you borrow a tool and break it, you don't try to find a cheap replacement on Facebook Marketplace, but you buy a new one, perhaps even a newer model, out of love for your neighbor and a desire to bear witness to Christ. Even if it was an accident, we are still responsible. And why? Well, ultimately because our daily ethics are to be shaped and driven by an eternal perspective. And we should consider continually in every daily interaction how we can bear witness to the fact that we are in union with Christ Jesus. Now, on the other hand, we should not be unreasonable if we are the ones whose property is damaged. Accidents happen in this world. If you loan something to a friend and he breaks it yet replaces him, you don't treat him any differently than before. You don't bring it up constantly in social circles as a way to belittle him. Don't ever loan a tool to him. He'll just break it. And just because we live in an overly litigious society doesn't mean that we should look to profit in an unreasonable manner over an accident or something relatively minor. I read recently about a class action lawsuit against Kraft Macaroni Mac and Cheese because it wasn't finished in the three minutes promised on the packaging. You might think of a few years ago, someone who sued McDonald's because the coffee was too hot. Those are ridiculous instances of people seeking to profit off of the success of another. And so it's envy, it's jealousy, it's wicked to presume that somehow you are entitled to the accomplishments of someone else. But let's go on to look at the next section, verses 16 through 31. Here we find another segment of laws that instruct on general conduct. And so our second main point here is conducting yourself honorably or conducting yourself with honor. Now we might read through this section of particular laws and at first glance they might again seem to be a little bit tedious. Philip Ryken comments at this point, as legal codes go, the Old Testament law is actually relatively brief. But when most people read through it, they find it hard to concentrate. And perhaps we wonder if it's really worth the trouble to study them at all. But just think about the contrast between our own civil laws, laws that are on our own books, versus the laws that we find here in the Book of the Covenants. I read recently that in our own states in 2022, 150 plus laws were enacted 
Now, you probably don't have any idea what those were, unless you're an attorney, and even then you probably don't know what most of them were. But the point here is that in comparison to the laws that we find here in Exodus, they are not nearly as numerous as the laws that we find in our own land. And what we learn here is that these are laws that are not interested in simply regulating behavior or trying to control conduct, but these are laws that are meant to address the heart of God's people. Scottish pastor James Stewart wrote, every Christian without distinction is to be committed to live for Christ with every atom of his being. And so these are laws, you see, that are meant to train God's people in holiness of life, to be a people who more and more reflect the character of God, who is the righteous and good lawgiver, helping us to learn to live all of life for the glory of God and conducting yourself honorably as a follower of Christ Jesus. And so we find first in this section instruction on how to conduct yourself honorably in the area of sexuality in verses 16 and 17. There's a great deal here that could be said in a short amount of space about sexual purity. We know that God's design for sexual intimacy is the covenant's marriage relationship. Yet it is twisted in countless ways because of man's depravity, because of the hatred of the evil one toward God's good design. But the situation that is described here is when a young man seduces a young woman who is not betrothed. Remember, betrothal at this particular time of history would be likened to marriage. If this were a woman who was betrothed, then the penalty would be death. If this was a woman whom he forced himself upon, the penalty would be death. And so the presumption here is that she's a willing participant in this particular scenario. This is what enables the man to approach her father, taking responsibility for what he has done by requesting marriage. Now, of course, this is a violation of God's design because the young man wants the pleasure without the commitment and responsibility of the marriage relationship. He must understand that there's no guarantee that the father is going to be agreeable to that request for proposal. The young man might have a poor reputation even beyond this particular act with his daughter. But even if the father refuses to permit the young man to marry his daughter, notice how the man must bring the wedding price. We see that in verse 16. This bride price is not paying off the father, but it's a large form of dowry that would protect the young woman in case the father refuses the young man to marry her and no one else will have her in marriage. And you see, the normal process then, so many years ago, is the same as it should be now. The young man is to seek permission of her father for marriage while reserving sexual intimacy for the marriage relationship. The young man should seek his own purity while at the same time seeking to guard the purity of the young woman whom he is pursuing. The charge is to conduct oneself honorably in this area of sexuality, not caving to those immediate passions and desires, nor to the foolish thinking of the world, but seeking to honor the Lord and his design. And notice then, as we move on to verses 18 through 20, there's instruction on conducting yourself honorably in worship. Israel is to worship God alone, avoiding any sort of 
pagan worship, or any form of syncretism. True worship is so critical to life together that to violate worship of the Lord alone is to incur the death penalty. And so the Lord here addresses different types of temptations that the children of Israel are going to face. Sorcery, bestiality, sacrifices to pagan gods. These are all things that, if tolerated, really have the potential of ripping apart a community. Witchcraft or sorcery is all about using forms of spiritual power to try to control another person. Or perhaps it's trying to ascertain the will of God outside of his revealed revelation. Or it's even trying to prevail against God's revealed will by conjuring up alternate spiritual forces. Deuteronomy 18 expands upon different forms of witchcraft. It addresses things like divination, fortune-telling, trying to speak to the dead, necromancy. All of this is done with the intent, you see, of trying to access things that are hidden from us, things that God has kept from us for a reason. These are very wicked things because the Lord and his word are things that are to be trusted. His word is to be studied and believed as sufficient, and God is not to be manipulated or to presume that we can manipulate him in some way. Bestiality is also a form of false worship. The Canaanites depicted their god Baal as having intercourse with a cow. And so there was this notion of emulating his behavior in order to arouse the false gods so that they would be more prone to do the bidding of the worshiper. This is wildly perverted behavior, things that are shameful even to speak of, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, 12. But they reveal the wicked and depraved heart of mankind. And then there's just outright idolatry, sacrificing to a pagan god, which is, of course, a non-existent entity because God is the only God. And it is a capital crime because of how offensive it is to God in a violation of true worship. Unfortunately, none of these three things are relegated to the ancient world, but these are all things that are alive and tolerated in our own time. Just think of how commonplace something like witchcraft is. There was a study that was conducted in 1990 that revealed that there were some 8,000 members of Wiccan in the U.S. Today, that number is estimated to be over one and a half million as young people are more and more enamored with the occult. You could add to that things like fortune-telling and psychic hotlines and horoscopes, which are things that are abundant. Such things gradually become more and more accepted and mainstream in our society. Bestiality should be something so removed from conversation in any society because of its vulgar nature, but unfortunately in our depraved world we hear of it much too frequently. And of course, idolatry exists not only in the worship of false gods and false religions, but idolatry can take more subtle forms, even in our own lives, in looking to something else besides the Lord for comfort, security. Our God is holy and pure, and so we must not violate his creation design, but we are to worship him only as he has prescribed. We come to a further section, further instruction in verses 21 through 27 on how to conduct ourselves honorably as we care for the poor and needy. As we think about the poor and needy, we should be motivated out of kindness because of the wonderful mercy and kindness that the Lord has shown to us. 
And just like the children of Israel, we should be mindful of God's grace to redeem us from captivity. We should acknowledge the fact that all that we have is from the Lord. And so we should seek to emulate the kindness of God by caring for those among us who have needs. If someone faces hardship, they should not be taken advantage of when they are in such a vulnerable estate. They were not to charge interest to a fellow Israelite. We could deduce from that that there should not be exorbitant interest from those who are in poverty seeking to better themselves. If an outer cloak was used, a situation in which an outer cloak might be used as collateral for a day laborer to go and to work and then come back and pay off a debt and have that cloak returned. If things didn't work out the way that he wanted, that cloak should still be returned to him for protection in the cool evenings of the desert. Even today, within the local church, we know that there are some among us who may fall, fall among difficult times financially and need assistance to help keep them out of debt. The Lord has appointed deacons within the local church who are there to offer counsel, help, and assistance in such time of need. And so whether in ancient Israel or even in our own time, the motive should be mercy because of the mercy that the Lord has shown to us. We were once outside of the family of God, debtors to the Lord. But by grace, we have been adopted into the family of God. Because of the work of our Savior, we recognize that we are merely stewards of all that God has given to us. And so we should seek to treat others as we have been treated. And finally, in verses 28 through 31, we are told how to conduct ourselves honorably in devotion to the Lord. We are to honor God is our ultimate and highest authority. We are to honor those whom God has placed as rulers and authorities over us. And by acknowledging that all that we have is from the Lord, we are to return a portion to him, just as we do with offerings today. As we give back to the Lord, that helps us to be mindful that we are to give our entire lives in service to him. In all of this, we learn that God's desire is for comprehensive holiness in the lives of his people. Old Testament scholar Michael Barrett writes, the primary lesson to learn from the book of the covenant is that the application of God's law extends to every part of life. There is no part of life that is too small or insignificant to be exempt from God-pleasing behavior. And so in all of these various laws, that touch on different parts of life together. I hope you can see things like the kindness, the love, the tenderness, the holiness of God. As we learn to think in our own lives more regularly and more consistently about the word of God, we should be encouraged to consider how our union with Christ shapes and informs everything in life. And the important motive behind all that we do should be love for God because of the love of God shown to us in the work of Christ Jesus. And as we wrap up, just think of one example from the New Testament in Luke chapter 19 in the life of Zacchaeus. I still remember my Sunday school days as a kid getting those handouts from your Sunday school teacher and the picture of Zacchaeus up in the sycamore fig tree straining to look for Jesus as he came by. Children tend to identify with Zacchaeus because of his slight nature. But we should all identify with him because of the way that grace transformed his life. It was Jesus who sought him out, 
It was Jesus who called him by name. It was Jesus who said to him, today I am coming to your house. It was sovereign grace that saved him from the wrath of God. And then we read of the remarkable transformation in his life as he pledges to give back fourfold of what he has taken from others. Zacchaeus does that not to gain the favor of God, because he found the favor of God. He sees his wicked heart, and it is his love for Jesus that compels him to love God in such a sacrificial manner. He acknowledges that he is, in fact, a thief. He came to see his wicked heart. He saw himself accurately, and he was moved to serve God because of his love for Jesus. And there's really a sense in which we too are thieves. We may not have embezzled money or committed corporate fraud, but we are all glory robbers and seeking to live for ourselves instead of the Lord, to live selfishly, thinking only of our own desires, to live envious lives in which we long for the things that others have, or to be angry people who are in need of grace. And as we close, let's reflect upon the comfort that we find in Titus chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works." These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so may the Lord enable us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling.